0: the cinema limbo podcast is part of Podnose, the uk's leading independent entertainment podcasting network for episode archives of cinema limbo and all of the shows on the network visit us at www.podnose.com you can also follow us on twitter via @podnos podnose or send us an email via admin at podnose.com.
1: family relationships have always been a source of tension, but some family members can be more trouble than they might be worth, and not worth bringing into the fold. My name is Jeremy Phillips, writer, critic and Parsley, and you are entering Cinema Limbo, the way station for underappreciated films. This evening's discussion covers the 1976 comic thriller Family Plot, the final film directed by Alfred Hitchcock and starring Bruce Dern, Barbara Harris, William Devane and Karen Black. My guest is author and academic Mark Aldridge, to join us in a sealed room in the Presidio. Hi Mark. Hi Jeremy, good to speak to you. You too, very nice to see you at last.
0: Yes, yes, so uh, I've, I'm very intrigued by your choice for us to, to discuss today because it's one of the films that I hadn't spent much time thinking about but it always used to find quite intriguing. This one I used to quite often see in the TV guide, sort of stuck out at 11 o'clock at night or something in the sort of dead slot and it's one that I haven't seen for a long, long time so I, I was quite pleased to revisit it.
1: Well, um... I thought it would be an interesting film for Cinema Limbo to cover. The f- last film of one of the great directors, Alfred Hitchcock, and yet it's not that well known. It's not achieved the same uh, cultural penetration as Psycho or The Birds or M- even Marnie or Frenzy. Um, and it snuck out after a four-year break... It doesn't have many of his regular collaborators working on it. Um, and it wound up being ultimately the the final film of his career. And I thought, well, if we're studying a kind of crime mystery film, you want to get a crime mystery expert to talk about it with. <laughs> so obviously, I want uh, someone like you who has solved numerous mysteries.
0: <laughs> yes. Yeah, my um, I, uh, specialism is Agatha Christie, among other things, actually, but she's, uh, her work is what I've been concentrating on recently. There is a sort of Alfred Hitchcock-Agatha Christie connection that didn't go anywhere, which was that in the 50s, um, there were some big popular uh, stage successes in the West End, and as was often the case, Hitchcock would be sent sort of notices about them and told if only seemed to be like a good candidate for uh, adaptation and he was sent simultaneously uh, clippings for witness for the prosecution the Agatha Christie play that was later uh, sort of shot by uh, Billy Wilder as a film and dial M for murder and he went with dial for murder. And so, um, well, I, I literally, all that there is, because I saw it in the, in the archives, literally, they, they sent him these cuttings. And um, he sort of replied and said, yes, dial for murder sounds interesting. Tell me more information about that. So he seems to have made a choice that witnesses of prosecution was not his sort of thing. Because he does crime, but he doesn't normally do mysteries in, in the sort of it type of mysteries. So he's often got There'll be a twist very often, or sometimes at least. Um, and crime is, is very important to most of his films, I would say. But um, usually not in the whodunit mould. So, so he never really sort of did that. He got close a few times, stage fright and stuff but um not really there so it's it's interesting to think about there's an alternative world in which alfred hitchcock did direct a Agatha christie but um no he's sort of slightly slightly off center from that more traditional mold i would say
1: he was also uh, courted in the late 50s to direct a james bond film
0: oh that's interesting so it would have been another sort of crossover of these big sort of british you know institutions uh, yes which you could see again I mean that would have been a very different sort of film, isn't it, than than we would have have ended up with,
1: because he was he was very keen on casting Cary Grant as Bond. Yeah, I could
0: imagine um, that. That that would have been a different Bond, but a Bond that would have worked in its own right. But certainly mm. wouldn't have been the Bond that we get to know. Oh, that's interesting. Oh, I didn't know that. But I, he did seem to pick up on projects that he sort of dabbled in and then, then sort of sat on the back burner and then seemed to bring back later. And, and he obviously had recurring things that, that he was interested in. But I guess that one of the reasons why Family Plot is not as well known as, as the others is that it's, it has got a lightness to it that, that we've, we've sort of seen in other uh, Hitchcock films. So he really reminded me of, of The Trouble with Harry, actually, in, in, in lots of ways um and the, i think that that is not necessarily the sort of most iconic hitchcock idea you know that when people think of what hitchcock is they're often thinking of suspense in a different way so there mm. is some suspense in family plot but it's not um you know it's not psycho it's not the birds it's not rear window We've not got those sort of really memorable moments um but it's it's an effective film, and it's 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 sort of a shame that it's forgotten. But it, I can imagine it being reappraised as well. That that it's something that I think people possibly warm to, a little, uh, over the years. I I would imagine.
1: Would you say perhaps that the lack of star power doesn't help it?
0: I, I, yeah, absolutely. And it surprised me because I I going into it, I thought oh, I don't remember who's in this one. And then I realised that I don't remember who's in it because they aren't star names. And it's a very good cast. There's no um, disrespect to any of the actors who give great performances in all of the lead roles. But um, that did surprise me. Um, and then I, you know, read up on it a little, as, as I'm sure lots of people do. And um, so, reading that actually Hitchcock <laughs> didn't want to pay for lead actors, He didn't want to pay um, Al Pacino. You know, I think as in the frame for one of them, wanted a million dollars. And I think Hitchcock sort of had this little repertory company type thing, the you know, actors that he'd used before, including on the TV shows that he did. And they're very good actors. And so, I guess. Hitchcock's name is enough in a way uh, for, for yeah. many people although I don't think it was a massive commercial success but I don't think it disgraced itself either and that would seem about right for this sort of film that that you know it, it feels quite mid-tier in terms of you know okay lots of nice things but not necessarily breaking ground that people are going to race to see and say oh you must see the new Hitchcock it's not that sort of film I, I would say
1: it's, it's settled into a kind of cosy niche for itself. One thing that I felt about Family Plot is it feels very televisual. Mm. It looks like an episode of Columbo.
0: I've literally got that written down, that it looks like an episode of Columbo. That is, that is the first note I've got on my phone <laughs> from watching it, is that this feels and looks like an episode of Columbo. That is exactly what it is. That's really interesting that we both picked up on exactly that. Because I just kept thinking... That, that was exactly what it felt like, that it had that thing of high-end television. Um, hmm. um, uh, so, yeah, but there is this thing about that, that he obviously did work in television. We know that he used TV crew for Psycho, for example, so he understood the efficiencies there. He was a very efficient filmmaker. And so um, I guess that sort of makes sense. But yeah, definitely, definitely television, and, and very Columbo in tone, as well. I know that it's a bit funnier than most Columbo's are, um, or sort of got lighter moments. But even those sort of the, the sort of sparring between some of the characters mm. feels very Columbo at times, when Columbo in the sort of uh, a villain
1: might. Sort and of br- br- Bruce Dern is a a bit Columbo-ish as a character. Yeah. He's he's a taxi driver who moonlights as a private investigator and also smokes an enormous pipe.
0: (laughs) Yes, you're right. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And it's got that little thing of the 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 whole thing of well, certain Ella, I don't know how much you like to spoil things in in the podcast, but
1: oh, we'll talk about the whole plot,
0: yeah, so the things like the the location of the diamond and stuff at the end, it's all set up, uh so we know where it is at the audience, but you're never quite sure how that's gonna come about and how other people are gonna find out, and then that is sort of that's got a nice little payoff at the end where she actually overhears the location of the of it, but likes to make people you know uh, think. <laughs> <laughs> that she really does have a little bit of psychic power there. And that is not necessarily, you know, Columbo, but the idea of holding back that bit of how are these pieces going to fit together that is quite a, a, a sort of Columbo thing. Yeah, yeah, it's it's very interesting that it seems to be riffing on that that sort of idea.
1: Well, the um as you say, the film's cast was originally intended to be a bit more high powered with um Burt Reynolds or Roy Scheider uh, in the villain role, Al Pacino as uh, George, um Faye Dunaway as his accomplice, wow. as the, the villain's accomplice rather, uh, and Goldie Horn as Blanche. And uh instead we have uh William Devane, Karen Black, Bruce Dern, and Barbara Harris. And I I wouldn't say that any of them have sort of endured as major names. Bruce Dern is Still a, a respected character actor. Mm. I think William Devane has died. Um, I, th- I think he's still around. No, he hasn't actually. No, he's still I, around. I looked them up. it.
0: Um, yeah, but not active. I think we can. No. Probably assume. Um, I think they're very. It's a very solid. It's interesting because it's it's a film that you could imagine that with different casting would be very different. Actually, I think that a lot mm. of. the the performances help everything to hang together in in a particular way um, because There's something about the way that everybody interacts that actually, I have to confess, after 20 minutes, I had to go back and watch the first 20 minutes again because I started to feel like I was supposed to understand more than I did. And then I realised that, no, actually, they're just revealing things to us a little bit more slowly than I was expecting. Because I was a bit confused early on about how these different characters were related. And I had imagined that there was some sort of relationship that had been revealed early on um and then of course we get the reveal about actually you know the truth behind an apparent death and and somebody pretending to be somebody else and so I I actually found that plotting quite tight and it means that you've got to be sort of swept away by a lot of the the performances I read a few reviews of it and quite a few were saying how talky it is early on and it opens with that really long scene that establishes loads of things with a sort of fake psychic and having loads of discussions about you know trying to locate you know um, a sort of nephew and all these sorts of things and I found that I really had to pay attention to that, which didn't necessarily feel like a Hitchcock thing to me. Often Hitchcocks have got big, broad set pieces that you get swept along with. But for this, I had to really pay attention to work out you know, why people were acting in particular ways and who knew what and all, all this sort of stuff, which is not a criticism. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't what I was expecting going into it because often his films are not plotted in a, in a really complex way. They're, they're clever and they're well plotted but they often don't require you to pay as much attention as I felt I was having to do for this which I was expecting to be a bit more sort of knockabout and, and light but I don't know if that was just me whether you felt um, how you felt about that
1: It does feel a lot stiffer than, than most Hitchcock films I think one his, his great signature is, is the suspense set piece and that his films will have maybe two or three of these great suspense sequences. Um, like, just looking back at Frenzy, you have the the murder sequence where you have the door slamming and then the camera pans all the way back and into the street where you have the market, or uh, following the body in the back of the vegetable truck and, and trying to retrieve it before it's found. In family plot, there's really only one suspense sequence. There are other scenes early on, like... Um, uh, retrieving the kidnap victim, mm. which you can see would work like that. But it's really only the um, the runaway car down the mountainside that actually feels like a one of those. And the rest feels a bit too uh, stagey or talky. A lot of it feels like it might have been adapted from a play because, not, not that that's a, a criticism, but just because it, it feels like it's more talk than action and hasn't been sufficiently opened out. Yeah.
0: I, I would absolutely yeah, the- agree, yeah. And I was really surprised by that, um the, the the sequence, you know, the the car sequence down the mountain. Because yeah, it did feel like it should be a big set piece, but The music seemed oddly lacking at that point, and it's like it wasn't quite sure which way it was it was pushing you because there is a bit there is suspense, but obviously there's comedy as well. And often in that uh, sort of um, sequence, you are guided by something like the music, and it was really lacking in that sequence. You know, it's got a, a John Williams score, but that bit was oddly sort of you know diegetic. There wasn't a great deal of extra sort of sound, and that really surprised me because I was expecting that to be set up to be a particular you know, big moment in the film. Um, and again, uh, the thing that that makes it feel very television is the, the terrible back projection or the the green screen work. Oh, yeah. Which, um, by all accounts, is because Hitchcock was saying, well, I'm too old to go on the back of a car and you know, truck or whatever, and be able to direct this. Which I don't think is really a great reason, not that I'm one to disagree with, with Hitchcock, but you would hope that he would have a second unit director who, you know, we know that he meticulously storyboarded his stuff, Hitchcock, so it seems bizarre to me that, that he wouldn't have entrusted a second unit director to to, to, to do that for him. Um, and that's a real shame that, and there are several sequences in the film that, that have got distracting sort of, you know, uh, work. And and again, I was reading some reviews, including ones from when it came out, and it is picked up by reviewers at the time. So, I, you know, sometimes these things look worse with age, but I think that always looked quite shonky. And that's that's a real shame that for a big sequence like that, they've got quite, you know, significant i mean we're a year before star wars here um and we mm. could have been twenty years before star wars for all of the the progress that that you know for the difference in 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 the way that, that things like that are achieved technically um i felt there's
1: very there's very little in the film that that fixes it as being mid seventies mm. mm.
0: um
1: maybe some of the fashions but but really there's it it feels quite old fashioned and quite dated yeah um I think late late in his career, at this point, Hitchcock was perhaps concerned about being sidelined, concerned about not taking full control of his projects, um, which would have discouraged him perhaps from uh, hiring additional action directors, for example. Um, His next project was to have been a a spy thriller called The Short Night, Mm -hmm. about uh, a spy... a British double agent escaping to Moscow via Scandinavia where he's going to be intercepted by an American agent and he spent some time working on the script with several different writers including Ernest Lehman who had been his collaborator on North by Northwest and eventually he fired them all and just worked on the script on his own which was very unusual for him because normally he was happy to work with co-writers or even just leave it up to co-writers altogether um, and I think it was I think at that point, where he realised he was too old and too ill to continue, I, th- I I I have
0: always liked his spy stuff less than than the other stuff. They they are his least effective films for me. Uh, but then I'm not a great great spy fiction fan, so I I think that's probably informed more by my lack of interest in the genre than it is by how Hitchcock did it. So um, it's I don't really know how he could have. Helped to reinvent that. That at that time, anyway. But who knows? But it, it it did feel that this is a an odd time to be making a film that feels so. Yeah, as you say, ret- there's a real fifties feel to. What I felt actually, it, it felt not very nineteen fifty. Again, you know that the trouble with Harry is something that kept cropping coming to mind. That there there seemed to be a lot in common between their sort of general overall approaches. Um, but I think that. What we've got in Family Plot is is a, a really solid movie that's got that that would be a good night at the cinema, but you might not never think ever think about again if you, if you didn't know it was a Alfred mm. Hitchcock film. That you might go and you're like, oh, that was quite good fun. I enjoyed that, and then forget about it instantly. Um, which is again not necessarily a criticism, but probably is not what what one would expect from from Hitchcock. Um,
1: not, every, not every Hitchcock film is going to be psycho. No, no, no. Yeah, that's a fair point. Uh, the film starts with um, a séance as um, Madame Blanche is getting in contact uh, with the spirits on behalf of Julia Rainbird, her elderly customer, uh, because she's trying to make contact with her recently deceased sister in order to find her son, who is the heir to the Rainbird fortune. Um, the son having been uh, conceived outside marriage and then adopted by the chauffeur's family. So we instantly have a, a mystery set up there of search for a missing person. And it's 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 a mark, I think, of Hitchcock's efficiency of, of laying stuff out very quickly, mm. of getting across the concept of a film very quickly. Mm. It's about the search for this character. And she's offered a finder's fee of $10,000, to use her psychic powers to to track him down uh, however we as she is picked up outside by her boyfriend the taxi driver george we discover that she is in fact a complete phony
0: i think we're already established quite early on that characterization is going to be really important in this movie that it's perhaps going to be about yeah the way that people have got these sort of two different personalities they were already establishing that that you know a a blanche the the sort of fake medium has got her sort of public facing Um, character which is as somebody who can you know um, uh, has genuine psychic powers and then actually her rather mundane other life uh, where actually she's scrabbling around and she is this this con artist effectively but then aren't all psychics you know I I don't think that's uh, should come as too much of a shock to 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 anybody but this is this thing about the old MacGuffin that, that Hitchcock always loved, and in this case, it is find the person for the ten thousand dollars. And it's just an excuse, really, isn't it, for everybody to come and have a bit of fun and sort of all these lives to to interact with each other. I would say.
1: Normally, I would say yes, but I found that MacGuffins tend to uh, function as an excuse for the story, whereas here, it's at, the the nature of the MacGuffin is not necessarily important. It's the microfilm everyone's after. Mm. Is the analogy I always use, but here um, the search for um, the the missing son and the character of the missing son are the centre of the story. Mm. So I wouldn't I wouldn't call it a, a MacGuffin necessarily. I would say that it's it's more a key plot element. Mm.
0: Yeah it's it's a way to to motivate everybody isn't it to to keep this yeah. this story sort of moving on because otherwise you would be dropped out you know uh, you you would stop doing anything if it weren't for the fact that you've got a life changing amount of money sort of at mm. at the center of it um yes and then we move on to something well i guess a,
1: well yeah. well as they're driving blanche does say oh with that money we could get married <laughs> and george says yeah yeah we could <laughs>
0: which is yes uh, an indication of the fact that this is going to have some lightness i think in this film it would be fair mm. to say
1: and um they uh, they as they're crossing an intersection they nearly hit a woman dressed entirely in black and they they drive off but we then follow the woman in black and she goes into a an armed compound where she pulls a gun and it's revealed that she and her accomplices have kidnapped a man called Victor Constantine and that she's there to collect the ransom, a large diamond, um, which they take off in a, a helicopter, land at a golf course, where they're able to retrieve the uh, the victim after the woman in black gets away. Um, she is picked up in turn by her male partner, There's that quite nice parallel. Mm. And they drive back into a garage where they have a prison cell set up in the wall, which they very carefully clear out, um, whilst also sellotaping the diamond to the crystal chandelier in their house's lobby.
0: I thought this was set up really nicely, that, that it establishes really quickly that there is another strand here, that we're not just following this one sort of couple that we're doing more, uh, we're going to be seeing more as well. And this is where, you know, it really feels Columbo at that point, when we are seeing all of this stuff about, you know, little secrets and people showing how they're, you know, wearing disguises and and escaping and things being perfectly timed. That really is where it feels like uh, something like an episode of Columbo. But also, it's great to have that bit of action and stuff quite early on. Um, although, again, some of it, you go, ah, oh, why, you know, why have you gone into the studio for some of this forest? You know, the woods at the side of the golf course and stuff like that. Mm. Little things like that that, that you think, ah. Oh. It's a real shame because that, that unpicks some of the sort of effect of it, I think, a little bit. Um, uh, uh, but nevertheless, it does interest you, I think. It makes you want to know what's, what's going to be happening next.
1: One of the notes I've made at this point is... Um, remarking on the film's lack of characters, there's really only half a dozen or so mm-hmm. major characters in the story. There's the the two couples, Julia Rainbird herself, and Joseph Maloney, who we'll get on to a, a bit later. And although there's a, another half dozen or so minor characters, that's kind of it. Mm. Yeah, it does feel it feels
0: cheap. It does feel cheap, um, and I, I don't think there's anything wrong with having a small cast. But but for the type of story that it's telling, it is a surprise that you know. As we were talking about the casting earlier, if you can have a small cast, you would expect these are really good, meaty roles, and so you would expect name actors to be playing these. And um, it's a, it is a surprise, although we we know the justification for it, that 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 is not a priority, so that helps it to feel TV again, I think
1: Uh, Constantine talked to the authorities and um, uh, tries to explain about his captivity, he notes that the woman who was there did all the cooking, uh, particularly uh, parsley with fish uh, while um, uh, George visits Blanche's house, and I've written RR outside, I wonder what that means Another mystery for you, (laughs) trying to decipher my handwriting. Um, George is going to investigate the the missing son and his first port of call is the daughter of the chauffeur because the chauffeur apparently uh, knew what happened to him but has since died. He goes to visit her and poses as a lawyer and eventually uh, uncovers that he was adopted by a man called Harry Shoebridge, um, but that when the chauffeur did die, the Shoebridge's didn't come to the funeral. Uh, and it turns out it's because the Shoebridge house burnt down. He follows the trail to the uh, cemetery where he finds that Edward Shoebridge died aged 17, but his headstone is much newer. Uh, they interview. He tracks down the stonemason to interview him, um, and it turns out there wasn't a record of the uh, stone until 1965. And they managed to track down the information that the stone was paid for by a Joseph Maloney.
0: And this is one of our family plots now of the, the title, isn't it? So uh, the, yeah. the grave site is the family plot. This is one of the points where I sort of started to think I don't quite know why it's as convoluted as as it ends up being presented to us because every time they sort of added another thing like saying oh uh, the gravestones more recent and so that made me think well how long did he was he around before he started to fake you know before he faked his death and it just all everything that they added to it just made me ask another question that made it feel a little bit less convincing i almost felt like it would have been better just to have said Oh, um, and, and, you know, he disappeared on the night of the fire or whatever. And so he was presumed dead in it uh, because as it's presented to us, it just made me go like, oh, how did that actually work? And then they have to sort of justify the bribing of the, the grave digger and or to put the headstone up and all of this sort of stuff. And so I, was ne- I, I felt that that made you ask questions. It's probably better not to ask because once yeah. you start to ask them, it starts to unravel. A little bit, um, but I don't know if that was just me.
1: I mean, one question that comes up is, if Maloney paid for the son's headstone, who paid for the parents' headstone? Mm.
0: I know that's what—that's exactly what, the sort of thing. I, I couldn't even get the order in my head to work out how that really happened, and I just felt like, oh, it's it. I imagine that that this was one of the sort of central ideas of the film, that they sort of grasped onto this thing about the, the family plot and that it's got those two different graves, uh, you know, the headstones, and that that is going to be part of the key to working things out. So I can understand why they kept hold of it, but it it does, I think, disintegrate a little bit when you, you think about it too much, mm. which you don't really want to do in this sort of knockabout type
1: of caper that, that no you got want here. you want to get swept along with it and and not feel tripped up by these sort of odd lapses i mean there are there are bits in north by northwest that are really quite shamelessly bad writing <laughs> but the the confidence of the story and the confidence of the acting and the charisma of the whole production it sort of papers over that quite neatly even the bit at the end where um uh, Leo G. Carroll's character is explaining to Cary Grant about the, uh, you know, what what it, who the villains are and what they're after. That entire scene is played with massive aircraft noise in the background, so you can't hear a word they're saying.
0: Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> which
1: is just which is an outrageous cheat.
0: Yes, yes. <laughs> It is this thing about that that you've got to have the sense of it, I think, that that you understand broadly what's going on. And it's best, I think, not to encourage the audience to to think about it too much because Hmm. I mean most films most pieces of fiction fall apart if you think about them too much there's always a way that you go oh would that you know would that person really have gone home that way would that person really have fallen in love with that other person so there's always something that that you can prod at so I think it's best to sort of hide it away a little bit because the idea of that is really good and I, I just couldn't get my head around really why you would have devised it in the way that he did it. It just didn't feel like that was the most sensible <laughs> solution to the problem rather than just disappearing on the night and just get... Anyway, anyway, I think we could talk about that that all the time. But actually, we don't linger on that too much because it is just another stepping stone in the end, isn't it, to hmm. to getting closer and closer to what we know will eventually be this crossover between our two pairs of, of characters.
1: Normally, uh, if a film's based on a pre-existing work, as part of my research, I try and read or watch whatever that is. Um, Family Plot's based on a novel by Victor Canning, The Rainbird Pattern, mm. but annoyingly it's out of print. <laughs> um, the book is apparently much straighter and more serious um, and is also set in the UK. It was an English novel.
0: Well, that's interesting. Yeah. Because it has got this identity in a um, uh, uh, family plot that it's got scenes that, se- that are very San Francisco and then scenes that, that don't seem to be. I mean, and I looked that up and I saw that he did film in Los Angeles as well as San Francisco, which sort of makes sense. And I don't know if it's just because of the San Francisco filming, but it early on in particular, and then all the way up to the sort of mountain sequence, it really reminded me of What's Up, Doc? Um, which you know, was only a few years earlier and again mm. was a nostalgic type film that it was not really you know uh, riffing on what the 70s were doing it was it was sort of harking back to the sort of screwball comedy type stuff um, and it, I felt really um, that it was very similar to that um, uh, a bit weaker than that though a little bit like you know uh, somebody who's gone, "Oh that's a success, let's do something like that," which I'm sure wasn't the case, but nevertheless, what's up, doc with these sort of chases and with all of this sort of you know seriousness uh, alternating with comedy um mm. uh, that there is a lot there that I think that they have in, in common with them, and both again, you know, timeless in 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 terms of the the setting, which sh- can only aid you, I think in the long run, um even if yeah. at the time it might see, have seemed a bit odd. I can't stand What's Up, Doc. Oh, yeah, I like What's Up, Doc. I think it's great fun. But I can, but it, it, it does verge into irritating. I can understand that, that some might just sort of see it, find it irritating.
1: I really hate Ryan O'Neill. Oh, really? Well... I, just, I, find, I find him so boring. Uh,
0: I, I, I think uh, when you've got, you know, Barbara Streisand and Madeleine Kahn both doing comedy in a film, I'm, I'm there, I'm happy with that. Um, and, it ha- and and it And again, so something that's years earlier... Um, than Family Plot has got these ambitious, brilliant, audacious action sequences in San Francisco. And then, you know, f- three or four years later, you've got Family Plot doing back projection. Um, it, yeah. it, you know, it's it's just, it's not up to snuff, un- unfortunately. Um, and, you know, we can be kind about uh, the fact that, you know, obviously Alfred Hitchcock was quite old by this point. But... Um,
1: and I recall that even Colombo, when they would have the occasional car stunt, would actually pretty much do it for real. Oh, they would yeah. not, they would avoid back projection. Oh
0: yeah, yeah. I mean, they would
1: just, they would just try and you know be judicious with the the budget and the the schedule that they had.
0: Yeah, because also that bit. I I and I'm jumping ahead of it ourselves, but that big sequence um, with the cars and the brake line being cut it's not like it's that complex. It's not like it's something that movies have never done before. It's something that's great in the middle of the the film, but it's not like it's breaking new ground. And so, unlike other films where Hitchcock perhaps was having to innovate and was having to bring something new to say, oh, well, We've never really had this sort of thing on screen like, you know, I always love the set in Rear Window about the way working out the way mm. that the mechanics of that can work. It's much more complex than, than I think that, that, that you would necessarily realise. Um. But here, actually, we've got something that by the late 70s, mid to late 70s, it's, it's really pretty standard for, for lots of films. It's not Spielberg going out and shooting draws and trying to work out how to make a mechanical shark looks terrifying. It's a well, fairly standard action sequence, the likes of which you know, Hitchcock had done, although, again, with process work, um, when he'd done things like To Catch a Thief and stuff, before, and North by Northwest, as, as you mentioned.
1: Um, and in fairness... Spielberg did for television in Duel five years earlier. Yeah,
0: you're absolutely right. That's a that's a very with, good... with
1: the same setting. Even. Yeah, yeah. So you can only
0: imagine the, watching it at the time. Um, because because for us, I think you can watch, you can almost box all films together and go, those are old films. <laughs> uh, and that therefore, perhaps we don't necessarily hugely make uh, sort of a difference, distinction between something in the 50s and in the 70s, because they're still decades ago. But at the time, I can only imagine going and, and watching something like this. And seeing something so blatant um, and it's not even just that sequence it is just like you know general dialogue scenes in cars and stuff that are using mm. green screen processes which is such a shame because it, it is distracting
1: uh, there's uh, one moment with, within um, George's investigations where he goes to the registry office and you see a large portly figure silhouetted <laughs> behind the glass door um, and apparently Hitchcock was at this point so um, self-conscious about his weight and appearance that he didn't actually want to do his on-camera cameo, that he just wanted to be in silhouette.
0: Ah, oh, I see. Oh, that's interesting. I mean, it's so recognisable by that point anyway, isn't it, from
1: all oh, sorts of Most recognisable things. film director in the world. Yeah, and
0: silhouette, you know, from, yeah. from you know having... Thoughts. So especially on television. We see silhouettes and stuff. Um, yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Oh, I didn't know that. But it's very effective, and it does just the right thing of making go. Oh, yes. But then you move on straight away. It's not. It's not a massive mm. distraction.
1: Well, he would usually try and do his cameos very early on in the film, mm. so that people wouldn't be distracted by looking for him. He's in the very first shot of North by Northwest, mm. for example. Mm. Um, and in, in Psycho, he's standing outside. Um, the property office in Phoenix, wearing a cowboy hat. And in the remake of Psycho, there is a Hitchcock (laughs) lookalike standing outside the office wearing a cowboy hat, talking to director Gus Van Sant. Oh,
0: (laughs) I've never seen the remake, actually.
1: Um, George traces Joseph Maloney to a petrol station where Maloney watches him suspiciously from inside the office. Uh, He comes in to to talk, but their conversation is rather forceful. And Maloney denies knowing anything about any kind of Edward Shoebridge. Um, George offers a reward for money. And um, one of them, I can't remember which one, but it says, Oh, like you, I prefer to pay cash. Um, And as he drives off, Maloney writes down his license plate. So then we have the connection finally comes up with uh, Maloney goes to the jewellery store run by the male kidnapper. Whose name we finally find out is Arthur Adamson. And Adamson is Shoebridge
0: and such a relief when I was watching it I said oh thank god I can understand where the characters are coming together now because I was starting to be a bit worried that I was going to have to really, really try and work out whether there was going to be a double bluff or, or all these sorts of things but um, yes I was very pleased that it was, ended up being fairly straightforward <laughs> uh, the yeah. way that these characters actually were able to intersect and that we weren't supposed to be because I was a bit worried that we were going to have a whole film that was about one of these many people is going to be this person you know the the shoe Mm. bridge and then we're going to have to try and work out which one it is so I was really (laughs) pleased that we were told right at the beginning and I did wonder for a little while whether we were going to be told that actually it was somebody else and that that was all the trick Um, but it ends up being a bit more straightforward than that and I think that's all for the better too so so I was pleased with that.
1: Well that's that's the thing is that it's it's a suspense rather than a mystery Mm. and you, I think you maybe perhaps expecting it to have been more of a mystery than it turned out to be, because the culprit is the one other character yes. knowledgeable in the film. Yes. It's it's either going to be him or Victor Constantine, who we never see again.
0: Yes.
1: <laughs> or the bishop.
0: Yeah, or the bishop. Yes, that's very true. Yeah, that was a great sequence.
1: Mm. Um, it's revealed what the connection is between Shoebridge and Maloney, that they actually burned down the Shoebridge house together and murdered his parents. Which is horrible, isn't it?
0: Isn't that horrible? That's really vicious and it's all it's sort of thrown away. It's not even like I don't know. Is is it fair to compare methods of murder? <laughs> but it's like yeah, I'd feel like if he had sort of slipped them a cyanide pill or something. That that feels like a cleaner way to just sort of you know uh, still nevertheless murder your parents. But the, but when you actually think about the reality of saying, oh yes, I'll I'll make get somebody to burn my parents to death. That's really horrible. That's uh, but but passed over very very quickly. <laughs>
1: I think it's a shame that we we never really go into uh, Adamson's psychology. Mm. Yeah, you're right. It's, he's he's just. I mean, he's basically evil. Um, he's motivated purely by greed. Murdered his parents for a laugh, um, and we never find out any justification why maybe he found out that he was adopted and was resentful of that and now is getting all the money that he deserved that he thinks he deserves mm. we don't get any of that at all
0: no we're left to In just a, to think he's a psychopath that it's as simple as that yeah we? yeah which maybe he is but i but you're right uh, and, and there's this charming element to him which is very welcome and works on screen you don't want the sort of evil you know scooby-doo cackling villain but no. but but yes, to unpeel those layers a little bit would have been something. It only requires an extra scene, um, you know, between him and Fran, where they could have had that discussion about, you know, his parents treated him badly. Not that any of this is justification for murder, or that, you know, there's just some sort of reason for for that mm. uh, beyond just, oh well, it's it's you know, a good way to escape with a load of cash.
1: Um, The police arrive as they're they're canvassing jewelers, because uh, they think that uh, the kidnappers might sell on the diamond. But uh, he very calmly and coolly brushes them off and points them towards antique stores instead.
0: Very convincingly as well. I think I would have been convinced by the performance that he gives there. That he, of course, no, we're nowhere near me. Yes.
1: He's very urbane.
0: Yes, he is. Yes.
1: Um, I think I read that George Hamilton was considered for the role. It might have been for something else. I could imagine... Because, uh, of course, a two-time Columbo murderer himself. Um, But I could easily imagine him very smooth, very charming, and then just turning the charm off like a light.
0: Well, there was... uh, Somebody else was originally cast as... um... Uh, as uh, Devane, and they actually filmed some, some of the sequences. I can't remember their name off the top of my head, but I was watching it in the in the little documentary on the DVD. And actually, you can still see them in long shot for like the Bishop sequence, um, which was the f- one of the first bits they did, apparently. Um, and so they sort of just reshot the bits with, with William Devane in it. So I thought that was quite interesting. In and apparently, Hitchcock had sort of discarded the other actor because he always wanted William Devane, and when William Devane became available, that's, that, that he sort of stuck with him. And then he went back to him and said, oh, well, you know, I'll just get rid of, after 11 days filming or so, I'll get rid of, um, get rid of him and bring back William Devane to do it instead, which is a bit of a surprise. Not, not necessarily the kindest way to do it.
1: No, not particularly.
0: Roy Thinnes, or Roy Thins, it was. Yes, um, Roy Thinnes. Uh, who uh, was originally hired, yeah. So it was after about 10 or 11 days, I think they said. Um, and uh, so he, there are some photos with him in it but it, it, I've read a couple of different sources some of which are older than others and so you're never quite sure which ones whether the truth has come out later or whether you know it's told the truth at the time and it's been distorted but some saying that he just wanted William Devane and when William Devane became available he just dropped Thinner's in, in, in favour but others saying that he actually hadn't liked Sinner's um, performance and so was sort of worked to, to bring um, Devane into the fold but either way th- this this is another symptom of that thing um, which is often said about Hitchcock about him, him treating actors like cattle and there is this idea that you know uh, uh, there's, there's no room for sentiment here if you aren't the best um, person to be placed exactly that point then he would just let you go because the story is told in that, that documentary I think was that Actually, Hitchcock was confronted in a restaurant about that by Sinners, and um, basically didn't say anything and just sort of ignored him until Sinners left. Um, so, you know, wasn't something I think that he spent a lot, lot of time even really thinking about because mm. it's a hell of a thing, isn't it, to, to be let go from a, such a major part in in a Hitchcock movie?
1: Well, uh, someone I feel sorry for on that score is Stuart Townsend, who film the first week or so of Lord of the Rings as Aragorn when he was uh, shown the door for not being quite what they wanted oh so they got Viggo Mortensen in instead
0: Yeah, I, there, are, there are tales of this that for actors must be the most dispiriting thing because mm. no matter how much you're told you're just not what the right person it's not that you're a bad actor which I'm sure is the truth for pretty much all of these cases you're still going to feel a bit crap about it aren't
1: you? <laughs> John Gavin who Hitchcock connection played uh, Sam Loomis in Psycho was cast as James Bond in Diamonds Are Forever and was contracted and cast um until the studio said no you need Sean Connery so they just paid off Gavin and he didn't have to work for a couple of years.
0: Yes, well that's something at least but uh, yeah in the long run you'd have you'd have rather had that uh, Diamonds Are Forever <laughs> role. Yeah, you, you?
1: you'd you, you'd rather be visible than on holiday. Yes. Um, there's a moment where they go into the the back room of the uh, uh, jewelry shop uh, where Maloney's been hiding, and they see that he's actually escaped. And it was Hitchcock's idea that the, that the moment they see that the open window with just the breeze fluttering and the neck curtain, the music should cut out completely.
0: Mm. That tells you all you Anything? need to know, isn't it? Yeah.
1: Yeah, but uh, because they've traced the license plate. And George was driving Blanche's car. They now have Blanche's address. Um, So uh, he watches the house and waits for them to come home. Adamson thinks that the money thereafter uh, is for finding Constantine's kidnappers, whilst they're also organising another kidnapping of Bishop Wood. In the book, the Archbishop of Canterbury... Oh,
0: wow! (laughs) Wonder where the ransom would come from. Who'd be, you know, who was going to be paying this massive ransom? I I think the church is quite tight in terms of the money we pay. (laughs) It'd probably be like, oh well, if it's God's will to release him, then he'll be released. If not, we're not selling up any of our silver to bring him back.
1: We we can always find another (laughs) archbishop.
0: Exactly. Yes, you can be ordained. It'll be fine.
1: I did think it was strange, the bishop
0: thing. It's great. I loved that sequence. I thought that it it added, like, a bit of fun uh, and that it it looked really good. Um, But, again, when you sort of prodded it for a moment, I was just like, why a bishop? I mean, uh, why not go to, like, a business meeting or, you know, and and kidnap a CEO of a company or, you know, the, the, the... daughter of of or, or son of some multimillionaire. It didn't strike me that bishop in the middle of a service was going to be the best way <laughs> to both get away with it and to to get that ransom that you wanted i did wonder if i was missing a bit of a story
1: there well um viewed at uh, through the criminal mind it makes sense for them to try and change their mo Yes. It makes them harder to catch because now, uh, this time, they ask for a million dollar ransom. So they're not, they've kidnapped a clergyman rather than a businessman and they're asking for cash rather than jewels. Mm.
0: Yeah, no, that's a fair point. Yeah.
1: I mean, it's not that different, because if it was that different, they'd, like, do a bank robbery or knock over an armoured truck or something rather than do another kidnapping. Maybe they just really like kidnapping people.
0: Maybe they do. Maybe they're, wonder they're, they're like, how much security like bishops the, have, anyway. I mean, couldn't you just grab like him on a wall? <laughs> <laughs> like the organising. Like, when he pops to Tesco or something. Isn't that a way that you could just sort of get him?
1: Oh, you mean the A&P?
0: Well, yes, that's true, yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, they... Um, uh, Maloney is going to arrange an accident for George and Blanche. Uh, he calls them and says that he has information on Shoebridge, um, and he wants a thousand dollars. And they manage to negotiate him down to only two hundred, <laughs> which is it's like how how valuable can that information possibly be worth? Yeah. And they they said no. They they talk and they're suspicious of him, and they also bicker over. Whether or not she's going to have another hamburger before they leave the house.
0: There's this food motif, isn't there, running all the way through it? That they, they seem to be eating or talking about food, and obviously they end up at a cafe uh, fairly soon or a diner type place. Um, yeah. So yeah, I, 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 that is another example that the characterization is really what I think. Or maybe even the performances are what actually enable this film to properly hang together because I'm not sure it really does hang together properly if you think about it too much yeah. um, but they uh, make it endearing in a way that actually could be quite tough that they are people that you are interested in seeing more of whether they are villains or good guys they are you know, interesting I think and stuff like the food and those little discussions um, uh, I think contribute to that
1: I think there are a lot of these sort of little ticks and quirks in the script that lend themselves towards uh, sort of a fun characterisation. But I think an issue is a lot of the actors seem to be from a more modern acting background. They're not the charismatic movie stars that they were of Hitchcock's heyday. They're more lower-key lower register character actors and as a result the performances feel much more muted much more realistic rather than movie sized again it, the film it points to the film feeling quite small scale and I, I don't think I engaged with the characters the same way that you did I found them to be for the most part quite dull uninteresting people It it needed to be bigger and more expansive it needed to It needed as though the actors had to fill out the space that the film didn't have Mm. because the film is more small scale. Um, I remember reading that Back to the Future, when that was being made, Robert Zemeckis was concerned that the film was a bit too small scale because it's all about this one family in one town and it's all a bit bit inward-facing. So he wanted the music to be big and epic and open the whole thing up and feel large. The music in *Family Plot*, even though it's John Williams, feels quite small and contained, and sort of quite light and gentle. And it makes it feel a bit too inconsequential.
0: Mm. Yeah, I think it definitely does feel inconsequential. Yeah, I'd agree. Yeah.
1: Not that it's a bad score; it just feels like it's a a bad fit for this particular story. Mm.
0: Mm, yeah, I think you're right. Yeah, I was really surprised by the music. Not like I said before about the, the, the sequence on the mountain. I, it, it, I would expect there to be more of it and that have have really strong themes, but it didn't seem to have mm. that for me. It, it, I couldn't, I couldn't hum it to you. <laughs> Not that you'd want it to. But you do anyway.
1: I think um, by this point, Bernard Herrmann, who had been his regular composer for many years, either was in the middle of working on Taxi Driver. No, actually he wasn't what, when was this film released exactly this is, this is 76 oh in the spring um, well in that case because um, Taxi Driver was 76 and Bernard Herman died on Christmas Eve so it would have been Christmas Eve the previous year so Herman would have been in the middle of doing Taxi Driver and then he immediately died so he would have been unavailable for one reason or another and it's possible that he didn't that Hitchcock didn't want to work with him anyway mm. So George and Blanche head off for their rendezvous at a um, mountainside diner, and they wait there for ages, um, even though Maloney is watching from outside. And there is there is a nice Hitchcock gag where a priest comes in with a big crowd of kids, and they all sit around the table, and then a woman in red comes in, and the priest goes and sits with her. And that's a very Hitchcock... Yes. Uh, uh, again, making jokes about sex but never actually saying anything. Yes. It's always just this side of sophisticated.
0: Yes, yeah, it's a good point.
1: It's like the last shot of I think North by Northwest being a train going into a tunnel. (laughs)
0: Yes, exactly that sort of thing, yeah.
1: I mean, it's filth but only if you know it is. Yeah,
0: or the opening of Cycle with, you know, you never did eat your lunch, did you, sort of thing. Yes. (laughs) Oh,
1: yeah. Um... They have a couple of beers but Maloney doesn't show up so they decide to leave but in the meantime Maloney has cut their brake lines and i think put glue on the bottom of the accelerator pedal Yeah So they so they wind up careering down the mountain
0: Feels like overkill um, to do both of those things doesn't it But i guess it makes sense Well
1: it's belt and braces isn't <laughs> yes. it Yes <laughs> Uh, you, know, you, know, you know, the way Hitler poisoned and shot himself. Yeah. <laughs> He's, you, it's, you want to make sure.
0: It's, it's a good point in the movie to have that sequence, though, isn't it? That that I think you're wanting to have a little bit more action. But again, mm. it's that thing about the, the tone felt a bit off to me. Like, the comedy was really broad. And I'm just like, are we supposed to believe that this is really how people would, would react? I mean, probably not. But then some of it does seem to try for a little bit more realism so i found that a bit of the sort of the whole climbing you know with with blood climbing all over the car and then trying to get it felt too big to me um like there's something about it that felt like it was playing to the back row um you know that if you saw it at panto mm. that that would be a really yeah. funny bit but it with no music and with the apparent danger that they're in it actually sort of flattens the moment for me to have the comedy there rather than enhanced it but um maybe that's a personal choice
1: and the way the the situation is resolved i thought was very anticlimactic they drive up the side of the the mountain slightly and the car just sort of tips over yeah on, on its side, and they're fine,
0: yeah, i mean was something really big and exciting and spectacular, and yeah, it goes into sort of a layby pretty much
1: <laughs> yeah i mean it should it should smash through some barriers and then. He he puts it like in a handbrake turn, and they just avoid going over into a ravine or something. Yeah, I mean, don't
0: forget to go back to what's up, Doc. They genuinely do go off the end of a pier and they go in the water and all those sorts of sequences. There's no reason why we couldn't have had that. Have actually had the if you're going to go ridiculous and have comedy. You know, uh, escapades in the car. Then why not really go for it and have have uh, that big standout action moment? But it's just not there. What a shame.
1: Mm. So this tips them off that Maloney is clearly covering up for Shoebridge, and they just start walking down the road. When Maloney comes the other way, and having denied knowing anything that's going on, he then turns around and tries to run them over. But he misses and goes straight over a cliff. And as he goes over, there is a very weird, funny sounding scream.
0: Yes. And that is that.
1: <laughs> and that's, yeah, that's the end of that storyline. Yes. <laughs> Fran, uh I think I must have mentioned is um, Adamson's accomplice, um, returns to the shop to report on the kidnapping. And they discover that. Uh, Maloney is dead. I think that there's is there a radio report or something like that, and um, they resolve that they have to kill George and Blanche. But then suddenly the story jumps forward. A few days at least, because George is at Maloney's funeral. Mm.
0: In this not terribly convincing again information dump that we're going to have to to make sure that they can get to the next stage of the plot. Yeah. And this sort of speaks to something that I felt generally about the film, which is that it was certainly too long and that you, you could cut 30 minutes out of it and lose one of these strands that move them from one section of the story to another. And it would have been much stronger, tight, sort of 90 or 100 minutes, you know, if you'd taken 20 or 30 minutes out of it and it could have been... Much more fun and much more sort of straightforward in the story, and it just got the, the one too many times when the way that they are directed to the next point in the story makes you go, Oh, really? That really? Someone mm. you know, at the funeral, someone can say, Oh, yeah, by the way, this is the information you've been looking for um, about this. Yeah,
1: I, I was quite there's a, there's a sequence coming up where Blanche tracks down Adamson through the phone book mm. and. It's just a montage of her knocking on people's doors, and this needs to be tighter. Yes, yeah. You need to you need to have like, what he she knocks on one door and he's a baby, another one and he's a really old man, and the third one is the right one. Yeah.
0: Yeah, it, it's it, again the pacing of some of these bits are just like oh why why is this stopped you know it's, it's like this, this film should have momentum that isn't there um, and that mm. sometimes when it does it it does it really well but it's in these little sort of five or ten minute bursts and then it sort of stops again and, and you're having to watch for uh, scenes that often feel like you say a bit like a play which is not really what you're looking for in this type of movie in 1976 from Alfred Hitchcock
1: no. At Maloney's funeral, Maloney's widow um, approaches George and and explains that Shoebridge changed his name to Arthur Adamson. And, yeah, it is very lazy exposition where a new character comes in and explains the story mm. to the person who needs to know it to get to the next scene.
0: And then, as you say, we get that little sequence of go- of checking with the Adamson's and even when she does find the real one, we get that really weird thing about why on earth anybody would give her his home address. And I know that is, again, the sort of little thing that in, in plotting you just sometimes have to accept. But there are so many instances of that in this film that, that it, it they start to really build up because the, the woman who she meets at the jewellery shop is clearly suspicious of her because she doesn't really seem to know who Adamson is. And yet is very quickly swayed into giving his address out to her. And like if he, if you did that once you could sort of get away with it. But it's just come off the back of information being relayed at a funeral for really no great reason other than that's mm. what the plot needs to be. And and just so many little bits like that that it's a real shame that, that, that there isn't a, a tighter way to to get that. Like I I don't know whether you would look up the business directory and find the name, you know, uh, the, the the owner, the registered address, or whatever, being his house. There is a way to do that that is better than the exchange that we have. I think at
1: that point, that they they should investigate Maloney's background and and find something that connects him to Adamson. Mm. Um. Or you know, it, it gives George another chance to. You know, go to his house and claim he's a lawyer, and oh, I need, oh, I need to take all this stuff from your husband's study, or something like that.
0: Yeah, something more interesting than going through the phone book, thinking, oh, this seems to be the one eventually, and somehow finding, you know, just being directed to their home. Not, hmm. not
1: great. <laughs> um, but the the reason why Blanche has gone to the house. Is because George has had to do a shift as a taxi driver. Yes. So I I I can't come and be in the film anymore because <laughs> I've got to go to my job. Yes. <laughs> um and but she leaves a message that um she's gone to the address. And she gets to the house just as they're drugging the bishop uh in preparation for dropping him off again. Uh, they Tried driving out of the garage, but Blanche's car is actually parked <laughs> in front of the garage.
0: I did enjoy that. I did think that was quite amusing. I, I, you know, the way that she's turned up at the most annoying time for them, I thought was really, really nice. You know, and that's the sort of things that shows that bits of it are really nicely structured and are nicely really planned out. Um, but uh, yeah, I thought that was great fun. Um, that, that that you could feel their annoyance that Blanche's. Slightly, you know, unwittingly, but also partially deliberately messing up their plans for for that evening. Mm. I thought worked worked really nicely. She doesn't quite know what she's getting herself into, but she knows that she ain't gonna let them go now that she's there.
1: Well, she um she notices that the bishop's cassock has been slammed in the car door, mm. which again is it is a very Hitchcock little detail. <laughs> mm. Um, and they close the garage door before she can get away and um, Adamson knocks her down and it's it then jumps to after they've dropped off the bishop uh, George arrives at the house and notes that the car is still there mm. he manages to force his way into the basement, into the garage and finds Blanche's bag with blood on it mm. um, and as uh, Adamson and Fran return, he overhears that they plan to take Blanche, throw her off a cliff, and then kill George when he arrives. Uh, Blanche has been locked in the secret cell, and Adamson checks on her uh, before they go up. St-
0: yeah, yeah, and is this, this is the point also, isn't it, at which she's apparently overhearing them saying about another diamond... The chandelier, or something, which um, is going to be become important as as we go on, because it's interesting that, like many of these films, you don't ever seriously think that that Blanche is going to end up killed here. But there is enough jeopardy and tension to keep it interesting. And I think there is that thing about, well, how will she escape? How is this going to pan out? I felt that I wanted a bit more of this. I felt that we could have come to this scenario earlier and that we could have had a much more interesting sort of face off between the two couples, uh, perhaps with sort of. Know, different escape plans or George helping Blanche to escape or however it is that they were going to do it. And it felt a bit to me like this was, by the time we got to the end, a bit cursory. Like I was expecting there to perhaps be a little bit more to it now that we finally had these couples together. And I thought I would happily have sacrificed some of the chatting earlier in the film for a little bit more of this quite fun and interesting sequence of of seeing how Blanche is going to escape and George also, I guess, in, in the longer run too.
1: Mm. Um, George gets into the cell and, and wakes Blanche and it turns out, as you say, that she's, she's shamming. Um, and they manage to lure Adamson and Fran into the cell and shut them in. And realise that they'll be able to get the reward... Um and in apparently in a in a trance, Blanche walks up the stairs and points to the diamond hanging from the chandelier, leading George to think that she's really psychic. Yes. I I think when I was watching this I missed her overhearing that's where the diamond was.
0: I um I only got it later when I was reading something about it and I was like, Are we supposed to believe that she really is psychic? And when I rewound it and I watched it it is there like but it's we don't get this massive connection you since we don't get a moment that really flags up oh she definitely knows where the diamond is but we do know that she can hear them and we do know that they then say oh it's another another diamond for the the chandelier so i i when i watched it at first time well this time i thought that she'd was genuinely then a psychic and then I searched and thought have I missed something here and I realised I had missed something and when I watched it again it is there so it's very easy right. to miss um because I did uh, uh although maybe other people don't but um I actually thought that it would have been quite fun to not have that to to have her at the end get lucky you know in a way that maybe she just saw a little glimpse of it and did she see a glimpse of it because she has some real powers in locating it, or did she get it because you know she got lucky and that we could have had a bit of interpretation of that? um but I guess we could still do that. you never know maybe it's her psychic powers gives her extra special hearing that she can see hear them from a little bit further away
1: <laughs> I mean one way that might be fun is that as they say, oh well do you, do you suppose that they're just gonna hand us hand us the reward as she holds out her hand? At the exact moment where the cellar tape gives way, and the diamond just drops into the palm yes, of her hand. Yes,
0: that's brilliant. That's better. Let's have that one. Let's go back and do a reshoot right now.
1: <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, apparently, one idea was at the very end, rather than having um, Barbara Harris turn and wink straight at the camera, um, she and Bruce Stern would turn, look up the stairs, and Hitchcock would be on the stairs. Oh. And he would walk, walk down a few steps and wink at the camera.
0: Oh, no, that would have taken me completely. out. I think that the, the wink that we've got is great fun and is very sweet, but doesn't necessarily mean anything. It is odd, but... Yeah. So, so is the film. <laughs> so it doesn't really matter.
1: I mean, you could do a, like a halfway where the camera pulls back and you see Hitchcock standing off to one side of the set, like an Alfred Hitchcock Presents mm. or, Ro- or Rod Serling. And he just sort of smiles, <laughs> like he, like, like, as though he is somehow narrating the story, yeah. which might have been nice. But that would have that would have worked if he had known this was going to be his last film, mm. which he didn't. But at the time, at the time, he thought he was just going to carry on with whatever came next. Yeah, yeah. So overall, it's it's not top tier Hitchcock. I think no. we can definitely agree on that. No.
0: I've got to say, I mean, I did enjoy it more than some of... You know, because he's obviously... He directed so many films, and I am a, a, a Hitchcock fan, but there are several of his films that, that, that don't really do much for me um, that, that I think are perhaps not as not so great, um, especially the more sort of spy-type ones, as I said earlier. And I think it's, it's certainly better than a few of his later ones, although so there are some, still some great later ones as well. Um, I think that it, it's... It's entertaining... I don't know whether we give ratings, whether you're going to ask me for a rating, but I, I would... No. I would say it's a solid three-star film for me. Like, I would, I would sit and out watch of, it. Out of how many stars? Well, there, <laughs> I'd say three out of five stars. Right. Like that That's what it would be for me, that it sort of works, and it's nice to watch on a rainy afternoon, but... I don't suppose I'm ever going to really think about it that much again, which is why you know I saw this last, I'm sure, 25 years ago, because I, I watched pretty much all of them when I was a teenager. I was about 14. And so I, I, I remembered basically nothing about it when I sat and watched it again now. And maybe I'll watch mm-hmm. it again in 25 years and probably will have forgotten it all by then as well.
1: <laughs> Thanks to Mark for making time for this recording. His best-selling book, Agatha Christie's Poirot, The Greatest Detective in the World, is available now in hardback and audiobook, and for pre-order in paperback. Cinema Limbo is now on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Acast, with over 90 episodes available, so please download, review, and subscribe. We're also on YouTube, on Twitter, at Cinema underscore Limbo, and Podnotes is also on Patreon, so please pop a penny in the box to help us with our running costs. However, until next time, murder can be fun. Been listening to Cinema Limbo, hosted and produced by Jeremy Phillips, with editing and music by Philip Alderman. Cinema Limbo is part of the Podnose Podcasting Network, so please visit us at www.podnose.com.